0: The mischaracterization of Loki in Avengers that doesn't yes. really match the three movies, so it's very bizarre. And I think this third movie finally tries to find a happy medium between those two. It because, marries them well, yeah. Because in the first one, he's not. I mean, he's a villain, but he's a pretty like low key villain. Yeah, low he's key. not like yeah. <laughs> I want to low key get it a. <laughs> hey.
1: Welcome to Marquez Played, the movie podcast about movie podcasts and the discussions that come from them. You are currently listening to Till the Words Run Out by singer-songwriter Josh Nolan off his album Fair City Lights, which you can purchase off iTunes and find a link in our show notes. But before this, you were listening to the great Bad Feminist Film Club podcast and their discussion about how to align all the different filmmaker sensibilities that have worked on the Thor series. Very different when you go from Kenneth Branagh. There's another film coming up. I think that'll be featured on our very next episode. But right now, you're dealing with me. I'm Michael Denniston of Projecting Film, and joining me will be Andrew of AV Film Review. And we're going to get into that idea started on Bad Feminist Film Club about directors playing in other filmmakers' sandboxes. So, on this episode, we'll be looking at Thor Ragnarok and suburbagon with one more great podcast recommendation this is I think the first time we've had a repeat of hosts me and Andrew so I don't know if that's good or bad Andrew if you know for us to be the first doubling down here for the listeners
2: well we have to let the listeners decide on whether they they uh, enjoy this this pairing um, you know there's there's a few of us so uh, that I'm sure they'll be able to fan cast who they would prefer to you know, have have as uh, guests or hosts or whatever it is. You know, there are fans of the Mike and Dave show out there. You know, it's a very popular duo. So I feel like I'm stepping on some hallowed ground here, uh, Dave's hallowed ground, that is. But yes, it's nice to be back uh, doing this repeat, uh, talking about films, talking about a big film and the yeah. small film which nobody saw.
1: <laughs> nobody saw, and this, know uh, yeah, this may be one of those. Those rare times on a podcast where uh, we're going to say that's okay to have not seen Suburbicon. This is not, (laughs) as far as I can tell. Unfortunately, I don't have the uh, the hottest of takes with this new film from George Clooney, uh, railing against the people for going to see Thor Ragnarok and not seeing Suburbicon. That's that's not going to be this episode. So sorry to disappoint there. I'm not not pulling out my uh, my old tricks mainly because I went to see both these movies. So I actually had to uh, to form my own opinion and. Thankfully for this podcast, we don't have to do too much of that, though, because we have other podcasts we're going to reference that do a lot of the heavy lifting for us. And uh, I guess the first thing here is you know our, our topic originally was going to be about mainly Marvel and in particular franchise filmmaking, sort of bringing in up-and-coming filmmakers into the fold. And uh, sometimes that works. Sometimes uh, you get uh, the the guy that ended up, up doing Jurassic World, uh, getting a brief flirtation with the Star Wars universe, and then getting shown the door. Um, But in in this case, it's been far more successful with uh, Thor Ragnarok here. um, At least one weekend. I I don't know if we're going to have some reevaluation six months from now where everyone's going to say this film is actually terrible, but so far so good with this one.
2: Well, I mean, everybody's currently having that reevaluation of guardians of the galaxy volume two at the moment, because now Thor is out and they're like, Oh, Thor is actually funny. And, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is a good film. I enjoyed it a lot um, and everybody enjoyed it right back then and now they're all going, is it actually that good? Probably not. Um, I still think it's good but – that
1: That's a weird way to – I mean I'm all for people. Uh, we have an episode that I did with Dave, the, the hallowed ground that you, you referenced there on uh, <laughs> uh, giving cinema a second chance and reevaluating and I, I like those sort of honest assessments but you know, something that is the Marvel franchise – just because you think that the latest thor is funnier um that should be a good thing that they continue to improve on their 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 brand and it is heavily branded but having seen this one did you feel that uh th- this film did it have enough of an individual spirit where you actually got the the filmmakers stamp approval i know that you're uh, you're a big fan of hunt for the wilder people and There are a lot of people that are fans of that uh, vampire comedy, which I'm not as high on, what we do in the shadows, but I understand that it's, you know, beloved by many. Did you, did you feel this was, is it Watiti? Is that his, is that the name? Yeah. Taika Watiti. Yeah. That name, no offense to the man, sounds so (laughs) silly that when I say it, I'm like, I fucked that up in some way. But yes, uh, Mr. Watiti, did you feel like this was truly one of his films or did it just have, just a sort of a splash of his sensibilities to it.
2: No, I think it is a, a truly a Taiko Waititi film and it, it has a lot of his personality and has a lot of his traits in it. And it's not just because he is a character in the film as well, but there is a, you know, the, he brings a level of comedy and humor that is rarely seen in, in comedies nowadays where there's a, a great level of humanity and depth in What he's presenting so hunt for the wilder people I think is a a great great film very very funny But it's also quite heartbreaking and and emotional in certain parts Now thor is not a heartbreaking or an emotional film, but he does still imbue Characters with emotional moments, you know, there's a certain scene where um You know spoiler alert, I guess, uh, but when hulk turns back into uh, Mr banner And he gets a bit upset, like, I've been trapped inside this body for two years. And, you know, it's a bit, it's quite sad. And I don't think that many other directors are able to manage, you know, straddle the line of being like, you know, this this moment of of sadness and and pain compared to the bright, amusing laughter that that carries around it. Did you think he worked as a director here? Did you think he, he carried through as his own voice as well?
1: I think so. I, I don't agree with uh, what you just said necessarily, but <laughs> but it actually works better for me that I disagree. Like Because I, one uh, – like just my sort of initial assessment of it was – and I, I've seen some complaints about this uh, – is that it works very well as a comedy and as is, is sort of one big goof. It's one big lark. Now, I mean the premise of the film is about Thor's world – coming to an end like the the i mean superman style this is going to be the ultimate destruction of his, his homeland here and that sounds it sounds on the face of it like you're going to be doing a disservice to this because we're so used to in particular with the the dc films um overly melodramatic sensibilities uh, of the, the characters the, the the tragedies are overtaking them and to a certain degree maybe the the early spider-man films as well with the the death of uh, Uncle Ben, uh, we get to see it twice over. It wasn't good enough the first time. We had to kill him again. But I think just you know where I'm leaning now, I would just rather just go with the sort of adventurous spirit, the the joke of it. And I I didn't want him to shift gears too dramatically, even though we are seeing a lot of death and destruction here. The best thing about it to me was that Kate Blanchett, the villain, comes across as like a legitimate comic book villain. Like it's kind of ridiculous and goofy and I don't need it to be grounded in any sort of reality or darkness, even if it is an end of the world storyline. So I understand those criticisms, but I like that you're never too far removed from a joke. I found it just very entertaining, a bit overly long, but no, I I liked him bringing his sensibilities and really just sticking to that here and not trying to, to make it more than what it is, which is a movie about a big green monster and a guy with a giant hammer.
2: That's it. Yeah, yeah. It can sparkle from his fingers. Now you're you're a little bit more of a comic book fan than I am. Uh, you actually read them uh, growing up and uh, you know participated in their culture for a period of time. So you know, <laughs> that sounds so you dirty. are <laughs> <laughs> Participated in
1: their culture.
2: <laughs> well, you know. I don't know. You read the books, okay? I don't. I've never peered behind the curtain to see what these uh, comic book fans actually do. Um, but you know, one of the things which I've read quite a bit about is the fact that uh, Takahitiri is presenting. I think it's Steve Ditko as uh, the artist. Uh, you know, he's presenting a lot of imagery that this guy has done.
1: Yeah, the trippy it, it is sort of 60s style.
2: Yeah, you know, there's the 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 shot of. Um, valkyrie with the horses and and fighting against Hilla, which is a you know it's a beautiful looking <clears> image <throat> and it's really really well designed and stuff like that and that's not an image uh that obviously it's not been seen in in taiko atiti's previous films because he hasn't done films about women on horses before but he's not been that kind of artistic director in that regard so you know it, it, what i'm trying to get at is that is do you feel that his voice works well enough with the original comic voice here. Because I'm trying to lead into Suburbicon in a way via this Ditko guy. So,
1: yeah. I I would say that my... Uh, the, the culture that I participate in or <laughs> complicit in, they would they would take offense <laughs> to that. That you're putting Ditko on the level of Clooney's work in Suburbicon, this 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 master of the form.
2: Well, no, no I, I, I hang on, hang on. I'm putting Ditko on the level of the Cohen brothers, though. Okay, and well, that, unfortunately, still the Taika Waititi them. fans out there, myself. Uh, so I'm punching myself in the nuts here, but uh, I'm putting Taika Waititi on the level of George Clooney as a director.
1: I mean, I'm I'm a pretty big fan of some of, you know, George Clooney's works. That's I wouldn't necessarily take that as an insult. Uh, Maybe with this latest film. (laughs) Sure. Uh, I I mean, I think that he's got. He's got a sense of fun and wonder, like his his previous films, like, you know, as I said, that with the vampire one, I felt like that the humor for me was a little too. It was a little too been there, done that, even though you're you're dealing with uh, the, the supernatural, which doesn't. Always get the the best comedic uh, takes unless you're a huge fan of uh, Dracula Dead and loving it with Leslie Nielsen or Vampire Brooklyn with Eddie Murphy. How's that for Jeez, for some throw? There you go. There's some sick references for you. Make sure to put those in the show notes for people so we can get that SEO up on people <laughs> looking for reviews of those. Um, I th- I think that he's he's willing to kind of go with any sort of concept and and not really apologize for it um even with his with the, the same Neil uh movie with uh, a child which i hate you know i you tell me that premise and i'm like oh my god i do not watch that like he he really he doesn't embellish but he embraces the the central plot so much to where even if it's something i'm not interested in for the most part i i find it to be infectious and and joyous and so yeah i think i think he's actually really good with with thor I, it's dramatically different from like kenneth Branagh's the first one where they were trying to make this i mean i still think the thor character is fun but they were definitely trying to make this like shakespearean in scope this sort of family saga and i feel like he gets some shots in here um i mean he yeah, has characters pretty much take that down uh, i believe the tessa thompson valkyrie character is the one who does that most prominently, uh, basically commenting on the first film taking itself maybe a little too seriously. When you have Anthony Hopkins with an eye patch, and the goofy mm. getup, um, yeah, I, I, th- I think he did a he did a good job stepping into the shoes and sort of pointing out uh, that uh, you know the drapes are kind of tacky, and I can do something with that. that. He's the guy that comes in and sort of fixes up your awful college dorm room. But that does lead me to the the usual Mike Staple. Where I do not – I've seen the the reports where he'd be happy to come back for Thor 4 and I'd, I want him – I, I want this to be a one and done. I would like for him to just move on. Yes. Like he took a shot and now go back to doing something original and hopefully that they'll see that he can do it on a grand scale. I'd like to see him come up with something crazy, maybe like Baby Driver, well, which I wasn't a huge fan of Baby Driver. But you know that worked out better for Edgar Wright to be dropped from Ant-Man and do his own thing.
2: Well, Hunt for the Wilder the people had – a car chase in it so you know that's his that's good that's i'm happy with that i don't i don't (laughs) want to see taiko atiti's baby driver please thank you very much
1: (laughs) it doesn't have to be exactly baby driver but you know uh the best thing i can say about baby driver which i said not a huge fan was that he was able
2: especially at the the kevin spacey things coming out as well so come on that wasn't
1: even gonna be my point and now you're you know at least the. the well, pun- what were
2: you gonna say? <laughs> well, I was,
1: now I'm gonna say at least the uh, uh, Burnthal the the Punisher, Marvel's Punisher, gave some <laughs> interview where uh, he said I didn't see any of that business from Kevin Spacey on the set. Basically, just said he was a big jerk. Said <laughs> I just yeah. didn't like the guy, which I actually found to be the most amusing celebrity interview of this. Like, I have no evidence of this, but he seems like an asshole. I'm like, okay, that sounds like a normal person. Just given their their viewpoint yeah. there. Uh, no, I I the best thing about baby driver certainly not Kevin Spacey at this point. Thank you Andrew for for admiring <laughs> <laughs> us in that controversy. Um was that he was able to translate he was able to s- seemingly bring back some fans that, you know, did not follow him through on something like Scott Pilgrim. He obviously wasn't able to get his vision with Marvel up for Ant-Man, but I felt like he get he did his Ant-Man heist movie just with his own sensibilities. And so I want uh Wattiti to if he wants to do something like a huge Valkyrie style epic, I just want it to be his own creation next time. And I think that he's got, now he's got the evidence that he can do it. He's got the, he's, he's a card carrying like big budget filmmaker now. So this is good. I think this is the right way to go about it.
2: Well, I mean this, the, the concept of this show Mark has played is that we take uh, other podcasts and, you know, take uh, recent films and, and the discussions that people have had and talk about what the, what's going on with them. And, one of the, you know, I was trying to narrow it down when they, we were really originally doing this, uh, it was about essentially, you know, directors for hire coming in and doing these big films. And I was trying to narrow it down for a particular show, but there were so many different shows which all echoed the same thing, which was that, you know, Taiko Waititi has worked so hard and this is his you know he's just desserts for being able to you know be improving himself in the indie world and now he's able to do a big budget film and the same thing has gone for like jordan peele and uh get out and stuff like that and people mm. are like oh yeah get out was fantastic now let's get him to go and do a marvel film it's like well no get out was fantastic because it was get out and that doesn't mean that the next film that he does whether it be a marvel film or I think you know people were talking about him doing akira and stuff like that it's like can't we just let these people tell their own stories can't we just let them go all right yeah i did this great film you know i did thor 3 and it was fun but i'm gonna go back and do whatever i want i mean we saw peter jackson you know essentially uh cannibalize himself in a way with the lord of the rings films and he could never go back and do the stuff that he did with bad taste or heavenly creatures and when he tried he ended up doing the lovely bones which is a terrible terrible film so (laughs) i wonder if you know power corrupts basically is what i'm trying to say you know
1: if peter jackson's listening which uh uh, most assuredly he is you know to australia uh, cinema's uh, most renowned critic here uh this, these are the but episodes he tunes in for, not the ones with Dave. He's going to be like, you know what? What do you want me to do here? You don't like me doing the Hobbit movies. I do the Lovely Bones. You don't like that. How can I impress you? Uh, but to your point, I, I'm, I'm definitely more fun with these filmmakers getting that notch on their belt. If this is what they need to do to create on a, a bigger canvas later on with their own stuff. Now the the news just came in today that Ryan Johnson is now signing on. I guess he's done so well with The Last Jedi that he's gonna create his own uh Star Wars trilogy outside of the Skywalker storyline. I found that incredibly depressing because I was yeah. I was hoping Disney would write him Big Fat Check. As I said, I have to keep saying this, not the world's biggest fan of Baby Driver or Kevin Spacey in Baby Driver. Thank you Andrew <laughs> but I want Ryan Johnson's version of Baby Driver. And now he's going to do for the next 10 years, presumably if all goes, according to Disney's plan, he'll be stuck in the Star Wars universe.
2: Yeah. Which is just, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of the guy. Um, I, um, <laughs> Ryan Johnson. <laughs> yeah. I just uh,
1: personally, huh? Does he not tip well or does he, is he always late for, for, for the well, movie dates or what?
2: I'm Australian, we don't tip, but you know, I, God. I just, savages, I don't know.
1: Mad Max for Yeah, we there. are
2: savages. <laughs> he's got too much of a baby face, but I just, i <laughs> <laughs> He is behind the camera, sir. <laughs> he's a leading man. <laughs> he's working with what he's got. But I, I, I admire his films. I think they are good. I just haven't fallen in love with them like everybody else. Everybody's, you know. Fawning over Brick and and Looper and all that kind of stuff and brothers you know, good bloom. On him. Did you like that, Brothers Bloom? I I really like the Brothers Bloom. I, th- you would. I thought it was quite yeah hipster yeah. hat firmly on well, right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And for those who you know, this is a an audio uh, medium. I currently have a mustache as well. Mm. Um, you know, so I'm looking extremely hipster hipsterish at the moment. But yeah, I just I don't know. He he doesn't work for me as a director. And yes, I'd like so to you- see him.
1: You're damning him to Star Wars Purgatory then. You're saying that's just fine. Stay in that realm.
2: Look, I'm not heartbroken if he gets trapped in that, but I'd be heartbroken if Taiko Waititi got trapped in the Marvel okay. cycle. You know, you know, there's there's some directors like I think Christopher Nolan was really lucky in the sense that he managed to manipulate the system and be like, yeah, I'm going to do this guy in a bat costume films and all this kind of stuff. And yet I'm only going to really do it so I can do my uh, space bookcase film, you know, that that kind of thing. That's what he wants to do. So I know how I've got to get to those steps to do those films. Well, he did um,
1: one in between each Batman movie, right? Didn't he do Prestige, yeah, he did, yeah. Inception? And you said interstellar. So he, he truly was operating under the one for them, one for me, which I think used to be the expectation. But as you said, mm. now the expectation is you graduate to a franchise and you keep doing it until you fucking die or we get sick of you doing it and we throw you over. Like, you know, Joss Whedon came back for Age of Ultron. The fans had no more use for him.
2: So he gets, he gets
1: tossed aside.
2: Yeah. And that's it. And he's gone. And you know, but he's back. Doesn't on matter Justice how much you, Well, yes, yeah, he is back on. His way back. <laughs> Even though his name won't technically be on it, it is, you know, he will have his uh grubby fingerprints on it. So, good on him. Flying cheating um, grubby fingerprints. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Look, I mean, with all these allegations and stuff that's coming out, like didn't he already have his uh bookcase opened and people like, "Oh, don't look in Joss Whedon's closet. It's uh, not pleasant at all. Yeah, he probably um, won't be on
1: the publicity tour, so yeah. we won't get to ask our hard-hitting Marcus played questions on that <laughs> Justice League <God. laughs> press God tour.
2: <laughs> Those are my people, Andrew. So I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> of course, it. you are you are in America, and you you do get to uh, you know move in that crowd of the mm-hmm. the comic book folk. Um, <laughs> so let's transition then to let's move away to from somebody comic who
1: book folk.
2: Well, yeah. Well, uh, sort of. I was going to say there was somebody who used to be a comic book person, which was George Clooney, failed. Uh, Yeah, yeah, and he recognized that hey, this shit is not for me. I probably shouldn't do this, and stepped away from it. You know, he had his opportunity in the Cape, and failed, and hasn't stepped back into it again. He's not Ben Affleck going, geez, I might try this another time, and or or the other dude, uh, Ryan Reynolds going, you know, let's do this more than once.
1: And in Affleck's case, he wins fucking best picture which you know say what you will about argo if it deserved it or not but he he wins an oscar the you know for the the best film of the year and that's when he decides to be batman i fa- i found that also to be a depressing career choice like you've already won sir you're you're directing critically acclaimed films that you get the, the 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 award the recognition from your peers and then i mean it's playing to that fanboy perception that the the ultimate prize is to be a superhero in a film, not to produce best picture winning material.
2: Well, okay. So if I, you know, if the rumors are correct, the only reason he did all the Batman stuff was so he could get a big budget on live by night and (laughs) which was his passion project.
1: (laughs) I haven't seen the thing,
2: but you know, I'm, I'm chuckling at this, this theory. (laughs) Okay, so there's more to it than just, you know, so he he wanted to make Live By Night and obviously that didn't do so well. But I think because he was so distracted with uh, Batman v Superman and that went dragged on for so long that he wasn't able to dedicate the time to live by night properly and everybody's like oh sad fleck he wants to get out of doing it all this kind of stuff and (laughs) yada 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 um which is good i'm kind of like yeah fucking get out of there man you don't need to be doing that you made a best picture winner you know you made two legitimately great films with the town and gone baby gone you know if anybody had those in their filmography as a director they'd be lucky you know they're great great films so for him to be stuck doing this comic book stuff it's like you're dragging yourself down man don't do that And, you know, it used to be the case that you – if you did a Best Picture winner, then you had carte blanche. You could do whatever you wanted. And that's not the case anymore. You know, Argo won Best Picture, and it's kind of like nobody went and saw Live By Night at all. The the power of that doesn't exist. And the same kind of, uh, you know, plays into George Clooney's work. He was nominated for Best Director. Uh, He's one of the few um, people to have been nominated, I think, for four different fields – uh, at the Oscars at once, uh, screenplay, acting, uh, directing, and best picture uh, for the good night, good luck. And yet nobody goes and sees his movies. Now, mm, whether they're good fair. or not, I'm not sure. But I'm just saying that, you know, that the power of the, the the Oscar is no longer there. The, the, the allure of people going, oh, Moonlight, yeah, well, We've got to go and see what Barry Jenkins is doing next, that kind of thing. You know, and for us navel-gazing folks, it's great because we're like, yeah, we really like Moonlight. It's a good film. But for the audiences out there, it means shit. It means nothing. And I think that the the face behind the camera, especially for your Marvel films like Taika Waititi, I don't think that people care. As long as it's good, that's all that matters. And they're getting another one in, what, three months' time? And then after that, another three months? And, oh, my Lord. Like, that's just slow the train a little bit.
1: Well, I think the, the bar it's, it's incredibly high for the, you know, compared to comparing the budgets for something like Thor Ragnarok and Superbicon. Uh, I'm sure it's much higher. Of course the, the built-in fan base is a lot higher. I mean, uh, Dr. Strange is one that I also just watched Recently,
2: do you hate yourself or something? Or it was
1: actually, I was gonna blame uh, the, the New Zealander, uh, Damn Watiti here, had me excited. I was like, Oh, Thor's enjoyable, like you know, I wonder what uh, Doctor Strange was like. I'm like, Oh, that's that's why I stopped watching Marvel movies because this is dreadful, this is boring as I'll get out, and it has no sense of fun or wonderment, although it is doing its best to rip off Inception at every single turn. You know, something like Suburbicon also bombed, but what I will say in the defense of. Mr. Clooney is that he's also, you know, he's, as far as I know, has not been, he does not have a live by night in his filmography as far as what he's chosen to direct. Uh, He's operating on a much smaller scale and the the bullseye is much larger as far as we just have to hit these numbers. He's he's going for a very, you know, he's going for the, the senior citizen crowd. He's going for the adult drama audience. I mean, he opened the American, which is like an art house assassin movie. To like twelve to fourteen million dollars in September, and that is not yeah. a commercial movie at all. So I think he has a fan base. The biggest issue here is, I think he misjudged his sensibilities or tried to graft his sensibilities onto uh, this Coen Brother script. And unlike Thor Ragnarok, whereas with a superhero movie, if if you bring you know, and here's where Mike's going to play that card again, if you bring any. Sense of personality to a comic movie, we applaud you. We're like, oh, this is actually mildly entertaining and kind of funny, and the the characters seem like somewhat functional characters again. You're a god. You <laughs> here's a hundred million dollars. Please do something else. Suburbicon. I you know I did watch this, and I, I by the time I got around to it, this has already been trashed as one of the worst things I ever put on screen. One of the worst of the year. How did he get this so wrong? I didn't feel that strongly about it. But I also, I mean, I see the missteps, but it's one of those interesting failures for me. Like I watched it and I'm like, oh, you can clearly see where he went wrong here. But in his attempt to do something, it's curious to me that with adult dramas, critics are so quick to trash. But I do feel like comic book movies just get a pass just for putting it like just they get the participation effort award. And that, that's not going to happen for something like Suburbicon.
2: Well, I think it's not just comic book movies, but it's also films that have a pre-existing text or something you know that people are familiar with. That they're able to go, uh, "I know exactly what I'm going to get when I come and see, you know, this film." For example, but uh, have you know, critics a, a,
1: given up on that too? Do they feel like uh, my words have no power here? So it's okay, it's
2: pretty good. Um. I don't think so, because I think that critics, at least this year, you know, 2017 has been a real test for critics versus audiences in regards to the fact that, you know, critics have absolutely loved a whole bunch of different films and absolutely nobody's going to go and see them. You know, we previously talked about Mother and, you know, I absolutely loved it. And a lot of critics did love it, but nobody went and saw it. Not the world's most trusted
1: right here on the other end of the Skype call. My word is what matters. I pick up the phone on Friday and the box office
2: shakes. I uh, despise oh God, mother. No. <laughs> so the question I have, because I didn't see it, uh I, I missed the press screening and um you know, did the the terrible job of going like well all the all of my uh, fellow uh People who review films didn't like it, so therefore I won't pay my actual money to go and see it. I'll watch it eventually. And I have watched all of George Clooney's films because I am a fan of his work. I think that, you know, I really love his early work. Good Night and Good Luck is fantastic. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is really good. Ides of March is really good. Monuments Men is a bit of a failure, but I think it's an honorable failure in some regards. But Suburbicon, I'm curious, because this is based on a script by the Coen brothers, just like Bridge of Spies, Unbroken, and Gambit, I'm curious how well he translates the idea that, or the 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 typical kind of uh, wit and you know, dark comedy that a Coen Brothers film would have. How how does he handle that? Because it looks like it's supposed to be funny.
1: Yeah, it's not funny, really. Um, it's, it's it's attempting to be Pleasantville. I guess with uh, a murder mystery at the heart of it, or in the sense that, I mean, we know who commits the murder, but other people are trying to find out or they're trying to put together what exactly has happened in this, this neighborhood. And uh, the biggest issue for me, and I have no idea. I don't know anything about the original Coen brother script. I can see the sort of situational comedy aspects of it. Um, unfortunately, you told us you told me pre sort of uh, recording this, this conversation that this script had been around for a while. Does this, do you know offhand if this
2: predates Fargo? Uh, I don't know if it goes back that far, but I wouldn't be surprised because I know that like Gambit and Unbroken were both kind of uh, tinkering around for a while. And Gambit is a terrible, terrible film. Uh, And it's certainly a film that, you know, I, I think that people, you know, the Coen brothers probably have a, A more than just a drawer full of of scripts that they've written, and I've gone, yeah, we're not that emotionally involved in telling this story. But hey, if it's got our name on it, then somebody else might be interested in doing it. And it might be then some, you know, curiosity for other people to see how they adapt our words. But it failed dismally, and that was an older script. So I don't know if it's from a certain era where they uh, were really trying to push themselves a little bit more in in the dark comedy realm, or not. I'm not too sure. But why do you bring up Fargo? Well, it
1: feels like you know the, the characters we're dealing with uh, in particular. There's there. This feels like a much. I don't know if I can call it a much more broad version of the William H Macy character from Fargo, but you okay. you have uh you know, one of the people in this neighborhood who has committed, you know, terrible acts but has somehow convinced himself and his his not that he's justified, but um that he's not he's not the villain here. That he's he's just he's just trying to damn it he's trying to get something done and everyone else keeps fucking it up. Like he's he's trying to commit this crime and people will just get out of the way. I think at, that issue is that Bill Macy character is grounded in reality. Like that feels like our world. And this, Mm -hmm. as I said, feels like Pleasantville. I mean, the name of the damn place, like Suburbicon, uh, this sort of cheery music is played. It's, it's attempting something at, I don't know, satire, but it doesn't, that doesn't really work. And so you, you have this atrocious violence and sort of mean spiritedness. that's on onto it. So totally it's all over the place. And so I brought up Fargo because I wonder if that was an the idea they had, and then they're like, "Let's take this and put it, uh, contextualize it in a different way." And oh, this works much better now. Then so that's that mm. can stay in the drawer. The part that most people are talking about is the uh, the, the race relations here, where you do have a, a black family move into this predominantly white <laughs> and, given the time period, very bigoted uh, neighborhood, and they are not welcomed. That to me feels like Clooney attempting like realizing that he doesn't have the goods here with this, as I said, Fargo light and trying to graph something onto this to make the film more important. And it's really just not that good. It's not a very good genre film. It's kind of a lesser genre movie. So you put Matt Damon, Julian Moore and Oscar Isaac. I felt like unlike Watiti that Clooney didn't have the confidence in the material. He's like, Oh, we've got to elevate this in some way. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with Thor Ragnarok, Waititi did actually elevate it from entertainment value, but he didn't feel the need to make it seem more important than what is. it is. I don't feel like he thinks that film is more important than his previous work. And I, in some ways that just, it makes the film actually click because he approaches it with that sensibility.
2: Um, all right. So the show that I bring to the table is who shot you, which is a, a great sort of new podcast where a bunch of really interesting folks talk about films and stuff like that. and, They talked about Suburbicon, it's really interesting as well because they talked about it about two or three weeks after it actually been out. The
0: thing is I still remember in the 80s, I think, was sort of the golden age of let's make fun of Eisenhower-era post-war suburban values and how it was this sort of gleaming facade under which everything was despicable. Like Blue Velvet is out of that tradition. Uh, There's a great Bob Balaban horror movie, Parents – you know, uh, 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 moving into the nineties, you had like Pleasantville, like, there's mm-hmm. been, that's, we've, we've been down this road before. And this movie, as much as it does indulge in the sort of delicious art direction of a movie set in that era, because everything looked great, even Fantastic. though life was shit unless you were like a straight white Christian rich guy. Um, you know, the cars and the coffee cups and all that stuff, it's all great. But, but the idea of finding some kind of ironic counterpoint that like, Behind all these, like, you know, white picket fences and beautifully mown lawns as, you know, discontent and racism and whatever else, it, yawn. Yeah. You know, we know, we know, we know, because the movies have been telling us this for a good 30 years now.
3: But it seems like, I mean... That's probably what he discovered as he was making it, <laughs> you know. Because then he's like, "Oh, I guess I'm going to spend most of my time on this white family and this murder. Like maybe I'll do that because I can't find anything new to say." Yeah. About... There, are,
0: there are genuinely like race riots happening in the background. Yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah. it's it's like kind of hilarious, <laughs> but but not not maybe funny in the way that he wanted it to be. It, it felt like a bad carbon copy of a cohen brothers i was like don't do this yeah you don't want to like try to go too close to what they do but it's hard with when you're working with their script and their characters yeah you know he i've you got to get a different writer you know (laughs) like he's so associated with them with the cohen brothers that it's hard to dissociate from that stylistically i think
2: you know one of the things that i brought up was the fact that there's a question of whether George Clooney is too close to the work of the Coen brothers to be able to have a voice for himself, you know, actually establish, you know, who he is as a director. And by this point, we should know who George Clooney is as a director. He's done enough films to, to be able to, you know, stick his flag in the sand, but, you know, taking something that he has been so close with the, the Coen brothers, he's done a whole bunch of films with them. And yet he's probably trying to emulate their style yet also trying to do his own thing. So inserting the uh, racial characters in, in some regards or the racial thread in some regards is, um, you know, it certainly does sound like Clooney in his uh, very left-leaning, like, hey, I haven't beaten any women kind of thing, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> does, does that make you incredibly leftist now? <laughs> well, I'm just saying. I didn't realize that's all it took. <laughs> Well, that's all it takes. Yeah, you know, if you're, if the secret to being a left-leaning person uh, is don't hit women. Um, but you know, I think that it's more a case of you know he's very he's very uh, in America. You guys call yourself liberals. Uh, you know, he's left-leaning kind of guy and and anti-Trump and all this kind of stuff. And it feels like his attempt to comment on it. But you know, the the problem is is that you know white people really shouldn't be trying to tell a Person of color, color's story hmm. when they Ten really have that. no idea what they're talking about.
1: I don't. I don't you, you don't agree with it? No, not really. Um, like I, I think I, it, I'm
2: not saying it should. Sorry, I will interrupt you for a second. I, I'm not saying it should never happen, but I think that if you are too earnest, then it can fail. Hmm. Okay, that's a good way to
1: put it because I do agree with that sentiment. But you know, because i I don't want I don't want to. Uh, you know, go to the movies and it's still at this point, you know, unfortunately, whatever you're predominantly going to have white men telling most of the stories you see. So I, I would not want to discourage them from like, Oh, you shouldn't, you should not tell those stories. Cause you don't know what you're talking about because then I feel like, well, you're marginalizing that product again, as far as how much you're actually going to be able to see of it. And like hidden figures was a film that I liked very much. Uh, found it very entertaining, crowd pleasing film and was a white dude that directed it but you saw a lot of in my mind very good comedic and dramatic performances from black women on the screen so i, I took that as a win I, I enjoyed it so not saying it couldn't have been better i don't think uh however that i think melfi i think was his name i don't think anyone's, yeah, accusing, him, melfi. Yeah. I don't think anyone's accusing him of being the next orson wells or anything but you know it was an enjoyable crowd-pleasing movie Suburbicon is not, and unfortunately, that element. I was even giving it the benefit of the doubt because I knew going into it that was a primary criticism, and I thought it was you know like you like this incredibly left leaning liberal who and just because you you've told me you don't you know if you don't hit women I assume you don't you must be the most <laughs> you must be <laughs> you know, the greatest leftist of all time here. Uh, I just assumed that people were getting their backs up just for the inclusion. But I have to say, having seen it, I really I feel like Clooney didn't know what he wanted to say with that all. Like it it, those two plot lines never converge at all in any real way that even plays to the strengths of the genre where I'm like, okay, you know, there's you can kind of toy with the characters and the audience's expectations a little bit that you introduce something that actually was a part of our history. And you expect Clooney to make a comment, make a sweeping statement. <laughs> if it was just brought in as a plot point to this little crime thriller, a lot of people would have been offended. I would have found that to be quite funny. If that's like if that if it's all just saying like, yes, all this other stuff was going on, but now I'm gonna redirect you to the stupid little crime thriller in this in the next house. I think that would have been fun. That would have been more Cohen Brothers sensibilities to me, but I think Clooney's a great a uh, performer and a great collaborator with them when he's just reading their lines and willing to make a fool of himself, play very foolish characters. But I don't, yeah, I wouldn't look forward to him uh, taking on another one of their scripts. Cause I think, you know, good night and good luck, much, much better and extremely earnest in its viewpoints. I mean, it's, it, it's almost laughably. So you have to kind of go with the idea of this, what journalism means, this respect for it, that it's kind of laughable today, but it works in. And doesn't work with Coen's well, comedy.
2: I, you know, not that I'm an authority on this, but I, I draw the line in the sand. I think that nobody should be adapting uh, Cohen Brothers scripts at all because none of them have worked. Uh, I, I think the Gambit, you know, again, was terrible. Unbroken uh, was terrible. Uh, Bridge of Spies was just not good. Uh, I didn't like it, <laughs> it all that was okay. much. I, I felt it like the Cohen
1: Brothers could have made a better version of their scripts and Spielberg could have done a better version with one of his regular collaborators. They should just walk away from each other.
2: Yeah, I think, I think so as well. And you can tell because it was kind of uh, tidied up by somebody else to come along and, and, you know, add in the Spielberg elements in that. And you can still see the, the skeleton of a very dark comedy of this guy who's, you know, this family man going to Germany to go and do this kind of thing, which he's kind of like, well, Do I need, or should I actually be doing it or not? You can see how the Cohen brothers would be telling that story and it would work so well. But in Spielberg's hands, unfortunately, it doesn't so much. And so it's no surprise that George Clooney has come along and been like, these guys, they don't know what they're talking about. I've worked with the Cohen brothers, so therefore I can, you know, emulate their voice. And oh shit, I've fallen flat on my face and failed
1: and I want uh, George Clooney to double down on his earnestness. I want him to <laughs> stop dabbling <laughs> in the silly comedy with your with your earnest filmmaking and uh, go back and do another good night good luck. That's that's that would be fine.
2: That's that is literally black and white. Literally black and white. He's, you know, can't get more liberal than that. <laughs> <laughs> George
1: Clooney black and white. Oh, oh that's it. Yeah, um, and this has been Mark as Played <laughs> Andrew and Mike. And if you're hearing this, we're about to do just that, clicking Mark as Played. On this episode, which uh, you've earned it, thank you for listening. And uh, if you like what you've heard, please subscribe on iTunes or your pod player of choice. Also do the same for the shows that we've sampled for you here. Listen to the full episodes. And give those uh, give those other podcasts a listen. We will have a link in the show notes, so that should be your very next step. Uh, other than that, come back next time as Dave comes back with a new co host to discuss Murder on the Orient Express and spoiler culture. So uh, I may listen to it, but uh, I haven't seen the movie, so probably not, you know, because of spoilers. You want more of the? A- more of this pithy commentary on our own shit. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Marcus Played Pod, on Instagram at Marcus Played. If you like pretty pictures, and uh, I'm Michael Denniston at Projecting Film. That was Andrew Pierce at AB Film Review.